Rose Red. <laughs> Who names a house Rose Red? Stephen King does. Yeah, <laughs> Stephen does. King definitely does. Davenport podcast where we talk about retro horror and sci-fi television. My name is Allison and with me for this episode are my co-hosts Andy. Hello. And Drew. Uh, Yep that's me. Val is still on a hiatus. She'll be back with us one of these days but um, in the meantime we're going to. Or did Rose Red get did, her? Yeah, actually, maybe Rose Red did get her. <laughs> was she called to that place that was super definitely in Seattle? <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. Totally in Seattle. I mean, I saw Seattle in the background in multiple pictures. Yeah, there, there, there were actually some good, like, little matte painting shots of Seattle, too. Um. Uh huh. <laughs> actually, the, ca- the place they shot it is actually a real place, and it is near Seattle, but we'll get to that. Okay. No, that's okay. We'll definitely talk about it. <laughs> but I thought it was all fake in models. Apparently, the exterior is a real Already place. Already derailed. Yeah. It's on topic. Yeah. We just haven't introduced what we're watching yet. Right. All right. Quiet, you. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're, for this episode, we're going to talk about the Stephen King miniseries from 2002, Rose Red, in case you hadn't guessed that from our comments. <laughs> <laughs> Rose Red originally aired January 27th, 28th, and 31st. It was a three-part miniseries, and it's officially 20 years old, so we're talking about it. And this was Stephen King's basically take on Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, mixed with a little bit of lore from the actual Winchester Mystery House in Northern California. So it's classic haunted house tropes and you have a plot where a bunch of psychics are hired to go spend time and do research in this haunted location and so it's not real original but it's fun and there's a lot to talk about this is kind of a a bonkers movie it's it is insane (laughs) um yeah and it's it's very like if you're familiar with any work like televised or film work that Stephen King has had a hand in, his, his fingerprints are all over this miniseries. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this we're going to go full spoilers for this. So if you didn't get to catch it back in the day in 2002 or um, haven't seen it in recent years, uh, do try to track it down and come back and listen to us afterwards because we'll be around whenever you want. So fair warning there. Mm-hmm. Full spoilers ahead. You will find out who dies, who doesn't, and who becomes part of so, Red. From what we read from a couple different sources, you know, Wikipedia being one of them and a few other articles, it sounds as if Stephen King originally, he was in talks with Steven Spielberg about doing a kind of a remake of Robert Wise's 
version of The Haunting, which came out in 1963, which is an excellent film. Highly recommend checking that out, which is based on the Shirley Jackson novel, The Haunting of Hill House. And The Haunting of Hill House is just kind of the mother of all haunted house novels. Basically, that came out and that was sort of considered this really creepy atmospheric masterpiece. Lots of work has been based on it. There's films throughout the 60s and 70s that you get. Also, early William Castle, The House on Haunted Hill, that's kind of loosely inspired by it. It definitely has its own story. There's Legend of Hell House from the 70s that stars Roddy McDowell. That's, that's a, a very similar premise. That's a good one. Yep, there's the, uh, the 1999 The Haunting, which uh, I wanted to mention, actually. Stephen King pitched Rose Red, his version of The Haunting, to Steven Spielberg in 1996, before mm-hmm. the 1999 Haunting was made. So that was, you know, it, it wasn't quite fresh in everyone's memory yet how um, how not to do this movie. <laughs> no. Yeah, definitely not. And I, man, I saw that remake in the theater. It was terrible. Yeah, I, oh I go back gosh. and rewatch it every now and again just because I, I like seeing Owen Wilson get his head bitten off. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally about to say that's really what I feel like anybody watches the movie for anymore is just to watch Owen Wilson die. Yep. Yep. Well, Which is kind of a weird reason to be watching a movie. And, and as as nuts as this miniseries is, I still think it's it's not it has plot holes for sure, but it's it's a lot more entertaining and a lot less grating in my opinion than that remake. That remake was just there's a bunch of CGI baby cherubs and they're all calling out in little kid voices, no, no. And Lily Taylor, who I normally enjoy in things, is just driving me up a wall. Everybody in that movie is obnoxious, including Liam Neeson, who's usually not. It's just, it's terrible. Right. I I also like Catherine Zeta-Jones a whole lot. And she's also just like, God, you're like a vapid airhead in this movie. It's awful. You want them all to die. Or at least I do. You do. You really want the house to win. Um, (laughs) Right. And, and it's, it's, it's stark because this is like, you know, it, it had a big budget. It was a box office movie. It was only 90 minutes long. And the special effects in it are not as good as a lot of the like the special effects used in this TV series. You know, it's um, it's it, it's kind of astounding. Yeah, this just came out a couple years later. I mean, it also had a huge budget, but that it kind of almost felt like Stephen King didn't get to do the film he wanted. And then mm. the terrible film version came out instead. And then he was like well, you know, let's make this TV movie and show them how it's done yeah. <laughs> or whatever. I don't know that that's what happened, but. Well, I feel like that was also the era of where, like, CGI was getting overused, but also it seemed like the technology got better, like, exponentially every year. Oh, yeah. So it's like those movies of the late 90s, early 2000s were, like, dated within two years of like oh look at this crappy cgi but it was only two years ago you know mm-hmm. yeah well I, I was actually talking with that about my roommates because they just recently watched the paul verhoven movie starship troopers uh oh. which came out in 1997 and the computer graphics in that still look good and they had a I, I think very much like the miniseries we watched here they had a good eye for when to use cg when to use puppets when to use practical right. effects and they kind of blended everything um whereas that that 1999 haunting movie was just you know it leaned really hard into the cg it and it's pure cg and that's the it problem. looks like a cartoon yeah and it looks like a cartoon and the the technology just wasn't ready for that yet i mean it's it's similar to all the things 
that are wrong special effects wise with the Star Wars prequels. It was just an era right. of people were like, oh, we have this new shiny new toy. Let's use the heck out of it. It's like we can do anything as long as you're okay with anything being a cartoon. Well, they're not yeah, playing to yeah. its strengths, which it's it's great for polishing and augmenting and mm-hmm. adding a layer mm-hmm. to something that already exists. And we've gotten this ramp countless oh, yeah. times, so I'm not going to go into it too much this time. But I'll bring up one movie that I usually bring up during these rants, and that is a very long engagement has some of the best integration of CGI to where you don't even notice it because it was just there to do the things that were impossible. Right. Everything that was possible to do with like a puppet or a, you know, practical effect, everything that's done with practical effects. And then you just put the CGI in there just to do the stuff that's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, CGI is a, is a tool. It's not, shouldn't use it as your your only source of movie making though. right well yeah. and, and i and definitely as we go through talking about this 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 is an example of a better use of a blend of special effects oh yeah mm-hmm. and they're definitely using C- cgi as well because they have a lot of models in this mm-hmm. oh so many models we'll I love get into it. the like the rock scenes oh yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> so good yeah. So, so basically, what what happens with this particular version of the haunting of Hill House meets Winchester Mystery House is Stephen King's fantasies. Yeah, we're we're introduced at the beginning to a little girl with telekinetic powers, and then and that's supposedly in 1991, and then it cuts to present day in 2002 where you have Nancy Travis playing Professor Joyce Reardon, who's a parapsychologist, and she's kind of in classic Ghostbusters fashion. She's basically trying, she's obsessed with this haunted property, but she's trying to legitimize the study of paranormal research. And she's struggling within her own university. There's other members of the faculty that think, that she's a hack and that she's misusing funds. And so she's got she's got something to prove real bad. In fact, she's got Professor Carl Miller, played by David Dukes, who's kind of breathing down her neck and he's sicked a student journalist on her. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting because I never really got the impression when I was in college that student journalism was any kind of threat. Like I always <laughs> just thought it was like practice for uh, kids who wanted to maybe have that as a career later. It didn't take it super seriously. And that's not a knock to anyone who did that in school. But I didn't ever thought that like that you would have the power. Like when I went to U of O, for example, I didn't think anybody writing for the da- Daily Emerald was going to end somebody's career on faculty by what yeah. they wrote. Yeah, I, n- I never got that impression in college. Nor would I feel like um, you would be allowed to. I don't. I think. I think any kind of issues with faculty would be handled in house, and they wouldn't want students to know about it. Probably would be my guess. So, right. so it's really interesting that we have the student reporter who's kind of stalking Professor Joyce Reardon. Yeah, Bollinger, who is name-dropped a lot in this. He's actually played by Jimmy Simpson, who I enjoy yeah. a lot. He shows up as Gavin in House of Cards, and he shows up uh, in the first season of the new Westworld series as well, where he does a fantastic job. He's just got one of those faces, and this, I just want to, yeah. like, I just want to punch him the whole time. <laughs> he, he 
kind of looks like an evil elf. Like yes. he looks like when I mean, they kept showing there's this there's this sort of like the horns little like pan statue that's like mm-hmm. supposed to look like a cherubic demon they keep showing in the courtyard of Rose Red. And then in the early scenes where he goes out to visit Rose Red, they show him and they show the statue of like he kind of looks a little like the statue. Just put some little <laughs> horns on him and give him a little flute. Yeah. I know him from the movie Debs. That's a cute he, movie. He plays a bad guy, but an endearing, lovable bad guy. Aww. Yeah. Debs is a cute comedy. It's we were we were discussing it the other day. It's kind of a cross between, but I'm a cheerleader and uh, Josie and the Pussycats. Like, oh, it's James okay. Bond. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's got that kind of like lighthearted, fun, mm. kind of early 2000s teen comedy kind of vibe, or late 90s. Some it's hard to tell what that era. Like they're kind of late 90s, the, early 2000s. Yeah. The, yeah. The the era of boy bands and Smash Mouth. Yes, uh-huh. yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, and I, and I wanted to mention, actually, this was David Duke's last uh, performance. He actually yes. died while they were filming this. So rest in peace, David Dukes. And there is a scene at the very end where he was to make an appearance as the deceased haunted version of his character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently from what we read, they used a life mask or a well, they used because they had a mask oh, for makeup, that probably. they'd already made for makeup for him to wear. Right. And they had somebody else wear his makeup and, you know, parade around a zombie version of him, mm-hmm. which is kind of creepy. After he just actually passed yeah. in real life. So that's kind of eerie. A little so, bit eerie. I feel yeah. like that's something I'd want to have in my contract if I were an actor, like stating my like, no, you can't use my likeness if I die. <laughs> don't Peter Cushing me. Yeah, don't Peter Cushing <laughs> me. Don't uh, uh, don't Carrie Fisher me. Right. Yeah. So Professor Carl Re- Carl Reiner, Carl Miller is the character played by David Dukes, and he's the one who passed away before filming had wrapped. And so, yeah, it's just a little knowing that going into the ending when you see him in the final scene that character knowing that there's somebody wearing his cast makeup and stuff to look like a zombie version of him instead of him actually being there it's it's definitely adds a level of creepiness to this haunted house story mm-hmm. a real haunting mm-hmm. and it's also sad you yeah. know because 55 is too young had oh yeah hard hard to do that scene probably yeah, it probably was very emotional for the cast and crew, I would imagine. So, yeah, so we so we have Professor Reardon, and she's so obsessed with this property. The property was built around the turn of the century in Seattle by an oil tycoon, and strangely enough, his company is called Omicron Oil. Yeah. I did not remember when I suggested we do this, because it had been a long time since I'd seen this, and I was like, wait. Did I hear that right? <laughs> I yeah. looked it up, and it is. And if you're listening to this episode far in the future, we are recording this during the time where the Omicron strain of COVID is just starting to get out of the headlines, you know. So here's another story where Omicron is messing with people's lives, but yeah. it was 20 years ago. <laughs> but it was Omicron oil. <laughs> yeah. But anyway... So this is the the estate of the Rimbauers, and they were a wealthy family oil that tycoons. had yeah oil tycoons. You have Ellen Rimbauer, who's the young bride of an older rich man, and and we learn through stories and flashbacks that she was pretty unhappy. And then she has a companion who's treated like a servant by everybody except for her. 
named I, Zucchina. Yeah, I think they're definitely gay. I got. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. heavy I'm gay vibes. Sure that's what they're implying. So there is yeah. a sequel to this that Stephen King. Stephen King actually wrote the screenplay for this. He yeah. stretched out the original screenplay from the film he wanted to do and made this miniseries. He did not make the sequel, which was called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. Oh, but okay. but the actress who plays Zucchina is in it. I'm not sure if they have the same actress playing Ellen Rimbauer. I could not find that information. But anyway, it's and we didn't watch. So it. I don't know if that's fleshed out more in that in the story about actually their lives. Right. But you really get the feeling that she hates her husband. She hates men in general. And Zucchina is well, her partner. Yeah, yeah. The way it's kind of the story goes is that like they were vast differences she was 20 he was 40 when they got married and then they like took this trip to africa and she gets sick while she's in africa and zucchina takes care of her she's the one that like stands by her bedside and everything she brings her back to health basically and, you know, yes yeah there's a bit of a what they call it the florence nightingale kind of thing going on mm-hmm. and i think her and zucchina probably started a relationship there and she just kind of like slowly gets more and more upset with her husband and hating her husband who just basically has her as a trophy wife well, yeah. and, and breeding stock they mentioned right. you know once, just, once she gives a son you know he's like okay well whatever filled her job yeah yeah so um, he goes out and play plays with the local the local ladies of the night and takes women around town in his in his auto car or whatever yeah. <laughs> there's a scene of him driving a really early car like <laughs> living it up and but so he kind of I, I don't even know if it would occur to him that she would have a relationship with Tsukina or if he just doesn't care yeah yeah I think he's literally past it he doesn't care at all I think he sees you know I'm sure it's like they were in separate wings of Rose Red at that point well probably. and he sees an African woman who's waiting on his wife and he looks at her as a servant and basically like a step above being a slave and he treats yeah. her like a slave like there's a scene where they interrogate her after their daughter goes missing and they beat the hell out of her. It's not fully shown, but it's implied and they treat her terribly. So yeah. more reasons for him to go. Mm-hmm. I, I also wanted to say the actress that plays Sukina, um, CD Laloka has mm-hmm. a wonderful face. Uh, she is so expressive. And when she looks like scared, she just gets these mm-hmm. huge wide eyes. It's oh yeah. She's, she's great in this. She is. And she's also really good at being that kind of creepy, like, host of the of the haunted house like good evening you know oh we're expecting you you know she does that uh, kind of sinister like welcome to the haunted castle kind of vibe they're killing them with kindness yeah quite literally yeah and when um when bollinger the reporter guy shows up for the first time at the haunted house because he is the first person to arrive to he's trying to catch them in the act like being stupid psychics not finding anything um, mm-hmm. So he shows up first to try and get the drop on him. And when he shows up there, Sakina, who has you know, disappeared and is presumed dead for several decades at this point, greets him and opens the door and lets him into the house. It's just great. Yeah. And, and we're shown before anyone comes to the house, we're shown a slideshow and flashbacks and stories about how people died during the construction of Rose Red. And then <laughs> <So> later... <laughs> You know, you learn that when they get the tour, I really love the tour of the house when they first get there and they talk about different rooms because there's a movie star who disappeared during a party and there's the little, the daughter disappeared 
when she was six, which is what led to Zucchina being interrogated and beaten. And John Rimbauer had a accident falling out of a tower. Um, mm. <laughs> and we learn later how that, excuse me, how that accident happens. And it's just the women had had enough. Yeah. I, I felt really bad because there was like the the three foremen that got killed when they were constructing the places. Like one was crushed when a, a sheet of plate glass fell on top of him. And the other yeah. one, like a guy was driven <laughs> mad and he was shot. And then the last guy, I don't know, he choked or something. And he choked whatever. on an apple. He choked on an apple. And I was like, oh, there's, there's what a, a way to go. Where um, Bollinger is like in the back secretly while she's giving the whole lecture of you know the history of rose red and you can see him writing notes and one of the notes just says death by apple (laughs) (laughs) it's like one of my podcast notes (laughs) death by apple oh yeah so it's, it's good there's um I had some issues with the pacing, especially in the first episode of this, because the first yeah. hour and a half is just an exposition fest. Um, oh, Drew, Drew has a story to tell you about when they first get to the house at the end of the first episode. Oh, well, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to get back to, well, that story is just when they first get to the house <laughs> and they're like, they get there and I could have started the stopwatch earlier because there's a lot of just staring at the house. Yeah. First, they <laughs> but stare from like, inside the van. They're like driving up slowly <laughs> and they're staring at the house and they have a little conversation and then they stare at the house and then, but there's this moment when it's the very end of the first episode and like uh, you get the first flashback scene of Steven, right? Steve. Yeah. yeah, the yeah. the last Rimbauer. The last Rimbauer has a flashback, and then like as he's having this flashback, you know, they look at him, and then like he says, "Oh no, it's nothing," and then they all just look at the house some more, <laughs> and then from the end of actual conversation, yeah. So yeah. you could really extend this number out quite a bit further. But from his end of conversation to them cutting to just shots of the house is a whole minute and 20 seconds of just <laughs> shots of them staring at the house. And it's and it's the same music over and over, too. Yeah. yeah we yeah. don't normally time things, but Drew was like, how long is this going to go on? Well, and, you know, this this isn't a movie, and this isn't, like, an episode of an anthology or something we were watching. This is a miniseries, so altogether this is 255 minutes, just a little over four hours long. Um, and sometimes it feels like it. So I feel like that sort of thing is warranted occasionally here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I I kind of think, I mean, this could have been padding, this sure. could have been trimmed into a two-parter, I think, pretty easily. And I, I think that maybe because Stephen King was really enthusiastic about doing a film, that maybe he did a lot of padding to stretch this out into three episodes, that he mm-hmm. had a tighter story. Yeah. There I is a like tighter story in there somewhere. Easily a very good three-hour movie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like one that you'd be willing to sit three hours for, you know? Mm -hmm. So another thing that's a little bit questionable in this movie, maybe a lot questionable depending on your take, but we have a main character, Annie Wheaton, who is a 16-year-old girl who's been diagnosed with autism who also has telekinetic powers. And Stephen King has this thing about kids who have neurodivergence or some type of disability also having kind of like psychic powers of some sort. It's just like a theme with him. You get it in, oh, is it Dreamcatcher, which I didn't read, but I saw the terrible film 
adaptation and you have the character Duditz who has special abilities. There's magical reasons behind that, which I won't go into. Um, or you have two characters who don't have any kind of disability necessarily, but they definitely have like social awkwardness and psychic abilities. You have Carrie mm-hmm. from the film Carrie and the book Carrie, and then you have uh, Danny Torrance from The Shining. And so he just has this fascination with young kids who are a little bit different, who have these powers and, you know, Firestarter, that's another mm. one. And it's just with things like autism, like there's just been so many stigmas around it. You always get a little just like, okay, what are we, what are we saying? And you have characters right. in this that use, you know, use the offensive word retard directed at Annie. I mean, it's a very offensive character in general that uses that. But then at one point, Professor Reardon makes a comment of like, oh, she can't hear you. It's like, no, she totally can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there, tell... there's a lot of dehumanizing of people with, you know, right. like yeah. neurodivergency in this. And it's not a great look, um, but the kids would say it's cringy. It's it a is. little cringy. Um, definitely, you know, I guess know that going into that, um, if that sort of thing is uh, you know, is triggering for you, definitely a content warning there because they, uh, they're they not light with the R word in this. I do think, though, as far as at the beginning of the story, we see Annie at her house and she kind of psychically launches giant boulders at the neighbor's house when she's five. That's a fantastic scene. And she she's doing it, actually, she's got a drawing. It's kind of like how if someone was going to practice like some form of sympathetic magic in a pagan religion, how you would have something representing what you're trying to make happen. And so she's drawing the neighbor's house and then she's drawing like destruction coming down on it and right. like stabbing at the picture with her pencil Right, she's, she's wishing that the house would be destroyed it, by a giant storm of rocks, and yeah. you know, her wishes come true. And I think that's a really interesting examination of how when you're little, if you have all this power, you're not emotionally developed enough to really handle it, and the neighbor's dog had attacked her. And the dog was being put down. Oh, she, buddy! I know, but she wasn't old enough to understand that this is this wasn't the dog isn't necessarily evil but the situation's been taken care of and so she just had this rage and fear and she unleashed it on her neighbor's house in a really extreme way in a way that you know they didn't deserve but it's it gives you an introduction to how much power she has mm-hmm. which was really cool but i also just thought well, it's like she's not evil. She's a little right. kid with a lot of inner turmoil and has a messed up home life because her parents are afraid of her. Her dad is kind of a blowhard. Yeah, her right. dad's a blowhard. I actually think their family is really interesting because it's like the you actually get some decent screen time with the dad in the first movie where he's like, he doesn't like this parapsychology woman. He thinks right. that she's like nuts. But he also <laughs> he also totally recognizes that his daughter is like gifted and has these like, you know, kind of Jean Grey-esque powers. Right. Um, no, that's and, actually what I likened it to is Jean Grey. Yeah, yeah. She's very much like Jean Grey, where she has this like hidden potential that comes out when she's being, you know, emotionally disturbed. And the and the dad is like, you know, look, I'm just trying to keep the peace here. I don't want to unsettle this. You know, she's the right. the parapsychology professor doesn't really care about you or or you know our our psychic daughter. She just wants her you know to make make her famous and take her to this you know evil haunted place. And the dad like calls every shot in the movie going forward. Right. Um, but and, and at he, the same time, he's just like 
the asshole on a barca lounger and a stained white shirt drinking a beer guy, you know? Yes. Yeah. He's definitely, you know, I feel like there's a lot of depth that we could have looked into in that family just by itself. Right. It's a whole movie on its own. And he, he has a really great line that he says to Annie's older sister, Rachel, who is played by Melanie Linsky and Drew, wrote he wrote it down, down but he basically, he said, he's aware that this house is haunted, right. that they want to go to. Bringing her in there into a uh, genuinely haunted house is like checking your gas tank with a cigarette lighter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and he, he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't disbelieve. He just thinks, this is a terrible idea. Right. And he's totally correct. He knows. Yeah. He believes Fully, and you know he well, sees he sees Professor Reardon for what she is, and he sees the situation as dangerous. And he's he's you know he's very brash and overbearing, so it makes it harder to take. And right. you can see why why Rachel is trying to rebel against him. And it's so obnoxious to me that they all call her sister, like she doesn't yeah. have an identity other than the fact that she's Annie's sister and they've sort of parentified her and made her this extra helper in the home. Mm-hmm. And it's, right. it's just like, it, she's done that to herself to a certain extent as well, but it's, they have a family portrait and she's the one holding Annie as a baby, but not the parents. Well, it seems and, like the mother is just checked out yeah. of the world. But, like, the parents, you know, they call her sissy and sister. And I, every time I hear it, I'm just like, oh, that just makes me cringe. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's another kind of Stephen Kingy trope where you just have, like, you know, the, the this kind of, like, almost prairie sort of sensibility with people have. They're like, oh, that's mother, that's sissy, that's father, you know. Yeah. A, a much more traditional ways of addressing people, which sound really weird in 2002. Yeah, it's very awkward and off-putting. But I do, I really love Melanie Linsky. She's a great actress. And oh, she's I'm fantastic. She's in this. She actually voices Beatrice the Bluebird in Over the Garden Wall. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's her. <laughs> yeah, she's she's currently on the series Yellow Jackets, which a lot of people have been loving if you like kind of horror-themed television. And she kind of made waves early on when she was in Heavenly Creatures, the Peter Jackson film with Kate Winslet. It was oh, a really yeah. amazing performance. And she's been in a ton of other things. I think she was um, more recently in I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. And a while back, she was in um, a series called Castle Rock, so also a Stephen King thing. Mm-hmm. And she was in the female horror-directed anthology XX. She was in one of the segments for that. Um, she's done lots of horror and suspense and other things, too. One of the things I remember seeing her in back in the day was she plays a love interest in Detroit Rock City. And she's, right, kind of, yeah. she's kind of an adorable character in that. Also has an overbearing dad in that one. <laughs> <laughs> but she's just, she's just pretty much a delight whenever she shows up in things. And I really like her in this as well. Yeah, I was, um, it's, uh, we should mention that the parapsychologist, I keep forgetting her name, Dr. Joyce. Uh, Joyce, yes. She is sleeping with Stephen Rimbauer, the last Rimbauer, like expressly to get access to this haunted house that he owns. And he's going to, like, kind of the inciting uh, incident here is that he's going to bulldoze it. Um, and she wants a chance to, you know, get her team of psychics in there and see see if she can, you know, 
make some waves, metaphorically speaking, before the place gets bulldozed and he puts condos up on the site. Yeah, and I, future I, haunted condos. Yeah, definitely future. Like, there's definitely going to be some, like, poltergeist type stuff going right. on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, continue. Yeah, well, the, well the thing that I was, uh, th- there was obvious chemistry between the characters of uh, Stephen and Rachel. And I, I totally thought that there was going to be a kiss or something before the end of the movie where, you know, Stephen's like, ah, screw you, Joyce. I'm, you know, you were just using me and I, I want someone who's got a good heart and and, I, and I'm really bonding with the, you know, the younger sister Annie here. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking a stand here and it just never happened, um, which I was a little disappointed in. But I mean, yeah. they're hanging out at the very end when we see like a however many months later shot. So yeah, maybe yeah. something is happening there. I always got the impression that something that they continue to at least have a good friendship if not a relationship after the fact because spoilers those guys survive (laughs) they do survive yeah and yeah i guess i guess i should talk about i i think you know not a great character again another kind of typical stephen king character um Mm -hmm. emery waterman the the maybe the most powerful retrocognitive person there because he's he knows what's up basically from the get-go he's getting ghosts uh, right. Giving him visions coming out of his fridge yeah. before even going there. Yeah, like, a week before anything starts, there's people already haunting him in his house, which I thought was really cool. And that also, is very Annie, cool. People are talking to her before she even gets there. Well, it's funny because it seems like the house is reaching out to Annie and wants her to come, mm-hmm. but the house seems to be reaching out to Emery, telling him not to come. Right, like it's well, trying like, to scare him away, and with her, it's like. There's little whispers and come, come home, Annie, you know, which there's never any stated connection that she has a prior connection to the house. It's just she feels drawn to it. So there's no it wasn't like she's a reincarnation of of, what is it, Alice Rimbauer, the little girl or anything like that. But it's definitely reaching out to her and trying to lure her because it wants her power. Kind of the way like the Shining House or the Shining Hotel wants a Danny. I feel like probably the Joyce had, because she obviously had been there setting stuff up. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure the house had been, you know, listening to her and finding out what was going on and probably doing its own research through whatever version of Google houses have. Yeah. Haunted house (laughs) Google. Yeah. Um, The house itself. This is one thing I had kind of a weird problem with was it's like, who is haunting and what is haunting and how is haunting because it's before the house is even erected there's possibly being people killed by the house and so is it the land that's haunted or is it the house that's haunted and then the old lady rimbauer she's haunting it as well and is she the one that somehow started the haunting Well, I think, here's what I think, because I did actually read a little bit of background about the land, and I'm glad they left this part out because it's a really tired, awful trope, but the, it's an Indian burial ground was where they were going with that. So it's sort of a la poltergeist and pet cemetery and stuff, you know, know, there's, it was just a popular trope Mm -hmm. and says a lot of things about white European culture (laughs) and and it's. 
fear and guilt, but um, this is sorry. a decade after Twin Peaks, and Twin Peaks, I think, handled it really well. Where you know they just say there's something out in those woods, and it's evil, and it's been there since before we got here. That's it, right? Um, that's, you know, that, like, that's all you have to say. Maybe before humans even, and, yeah. and so they didn't they didn't address that here. They do address the fact that Ellen Rimbauer was deeply unhappy and feeling trapped in her life, and so. And also because of her near-death experience in Africa, she they show a scene, a flashback, where she has a seance held with a local psychic that they hire to find out what she can do because she's afraid she's going to have a recurrence of the fever or that her heart's been weakened. You know, she's worried about dying young, which mm-hmm. really takes a riff off of the Winchester mystery legends mm-hmm. where you have a woman, the, the Winchester widow, was told reportedly by a psychic and if i'm getting this story wrong i apologize it's been a while since i read anything about that and i have not yet been to the house want to but have not been there yet she was haunted davenport field trip right she was obsessed with there being a curse placed on her family because of the fact that the money came from the winchester rifles and she was worried that all of the blood and death energy from everybody who'd ever been killed by one of the rifles was going to come descend upon her in her home. And so she was told to keep building, that she would stay alive as long as she kept building. Right. And so Stephen She'd King... she die after the house was finished. He borrows from that. And basically, whatever energy is in the house and the land reaches out through this seance in this miniseries and says to Ellen Rimbauer that you'll be fine as long as you keep building. So she just hires people in the same fashion as, you know, in the Winchester story, she hires people to build extensions. And then when they run out of space to expand, then she has them build weird optical illusion rooms and secret doorways and kind of puzzles within the house and build all this fun, crazy mystery you know house of mystery type stuff into this giant sprawling mansion and so she's obsessed with that and then she disappears at age 70 while on the anniversary of moving into the house and she's walking around in her ritual white dress that she wears every year on the same date in the house after she disappears seems to continue building itself so it's kind of this idea that at, at a certain point, once she and Zucchina are absorbed by the house and be kind of become one with it as far as their energy and the whatever paranormal slippage is happening there, then they kind of collect souls to keep working on the house in the afterlife. Like, you become yeah. trapped there. She, she, she tries to give a hammer to... Uh young Stephen Rimbauer when he's a child to help keep building So it's kind of like a weird half and half situation where it's like the, maybe the land had this strong negative energy and then the building of the house had strong negative energy and then coupled with the woman who's obsessed with the house and also deeply unhappy and then there's a series of misfortunate events that continue to take place. So just kind of like it feeds upon itself, right. I think is the idea. That would that would actually be a really interesting story. If you started with a, like, you know, kind of like a Lovecrafty uh, premise where you're like, oh, there's just a place and it's just bad and people shouldn't mm-hmm. build stuff there. But then you had this guy and he was definitely evil and everybody didn't like him. And he built his house on this place 
and it just got more. So you've got like layers of evil and, you know, you get an investigator go in there and they've got to try and suss out like what's causing what, because every, you know, all ghosts and evil have a thing that they're trying to, you know, either stop or resolve or work through or something that I think that'd be a fun, you know, like maybe not a miniseries, maybe a movie or something, but you know, a, a layer cake of evil, if you will. Yeah, right. definitely. Which is kind of what's going on here. Yeah. That's, but it, it, you know, for for all the exposition and stuff going on in the series, they don't really dig into it that much. Right. Um, we get a lot why of you're left with so many questions. Yes. Yeah. And also, yeah. I always had questions because we watched it and then I was like, I need to kind of at least watch the beginning because I wasn't paying a full attention. And then I just was lost with stuff later on. And then we rewatched the first two parts. And after rewatching, I realized, oh, it was just more ambiguous. It wasn't that I didn't, like, I didn't miss something. Yeah. It just, yeah, just wasn't just never explained. explained. Yeah. And it's like, there is, one of my biggest problems is I never know at what point who's dead and who's alive. Yeah. Because people are getting picked off, but as they're getting picked off, they're still showing up to other people as if they're not dead. And then there's some people that are like, they seem like they're dead, but then they're zombied, but they're not dead yet. And then they're dead because like um, Emery, he only picks up the people that are dead. He doesn't pick up live people. Yes. And so like he later on is like, oh, now this person's dead. So it's like basically he's the one that can do the dead ha- the head count of dead people mm-hmm. and it's like but there's so many people that you thought were dead before they actually were dead. Right. Well, for example, um with the character Bollinger, like the reporter kid, he it's you think that he gets it right in the beginning cuz he right. comes to he the house. He seems like the first one to go. You yeah. see him you see him in the garden area and he, there's some bees and you think oh are the bees going to sting him to death and turns out that's not what happens. He looks up and something terrifying grabs him from above that unfortunately he dripped with, like, we don't get to see. Yeah. But there's some kind of creature in the garden near the beehive that grabs him up off the ground and we don't get to see it we don't know what it is it's not referred to later and then we're told towards the end that he was still alive but he grabbed the mother of i'm blanking on the character's name now um emery Emery. Emery, he he grabs emery's mother out of the front or the front entryway area because they're all right. running around. At one point, there's multiple characters running amok on the on the grounds, basically, yeah. all, through all the brambles. from and looking for each other, yeah. Yeah, right. and they're all terrified and seeing scary things. And so apparently like Kevin Bollinger... they're all hallucinating each other as evil demons. Gra- and they're yeah. looking for each other. <laughs> he grabs her, drags her into the house, and we see her get dragged away. And you think there, too, you think, oh, well, she's going to be dead. And we find out later that she's still alive at one point. And apparently he grabs her, drags her into the house, and then later goes into the library and hangs himself. And which we're not shown any of that. We're right. just told that after the fact. So it's a little bonky. You're just going to see his, his hanged body. I thought, because the ghosts in this house definitely have agency and are able to not only trick people visually but grab people and touch people and even make phone calls 
Mm-hmm. In, in, as other people. Yeah, imp- impersonate people. phone calls. Yes, yeah, lure people to the house. So it's interesting that he needed to still be alive to grab Emery's mom because I thought in that scene, I was like, oh, he's like a zombie version of himself. He yeah. looks like a zombie version of himself. And then we're told he hung himself later. But like he's been there for two days right. just running around. Yeah, kind of. And, well, and, and with motives unknown. Zombie. Yeah. Like yeah. It, what, it, was he possessed? Was he like coerced? We, we, we just right. don't know. Yeah. Well, we also don't. Another thing that kind of isn't really fully hashed out is the character of Annie. She's so powerful and everything, but it kind of seems like, I mean, she's, she wants to connect with the house and some of the spirits. I don't think she necessarily wants to connect with all of the spirits, but definitely the little girl spirit right. that's there, little April Rimbauer. And she wants to play with, there's this epic dollhouse version of the house that oh, yeah. she's shown and she becomes obsessed with, which is really fun and cool. But they find out later on that she's psychically holding all the doors shut once things start to ramp up. And there's not real motivation for Annie herself to want to do that and keep everyone there. Right. So it's weird that she's doing that. So you kind of wonder, is Ellen, because Ellen is sort of the master of the house in a way, and kind of like the head ghost, it seems like, Mm. is she trying to possess Annie and then use her power to keep everybody there because yeah. she couldn't keep the door right. shut on her own without well, I think Annie. What it is. Cause the whole idea behind the premise of the movie is that crazy ass Joyce who just gets crazier and crazier as this movie progresses. It's, it's a wonderful descent. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. God. Like she starts off, you're kind of rooting for her and then she has some moments and then you're like, Oh, she's evil. And then she has some moments where you're like, Oh, she's just misunderstood. And then and by the end, you're just like, oh, no, she's just batshit insane. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think she's crazy from the get-go, though, because there's a scene right, but before you don't... they go to the house. No, but she's she's definitely crazy it, like a fox early it on. It takes a yeah. while to figure it out, She, though. like, white, she but she brought all these... blood on, on the other professor when they're arguing about her right. tenure being revoked. Yeah, yeah. That's... after she nicks herself on her purse conveniently right before But the there's this really squeamish scene of her, like rubbing the blood into her palm and planning what she's going to do with this blood. Yeah. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> and so, like, she has basically got herself assembled the super friends of the psychic world. Yeah, she, oh, yeah. she puts her team together. Yeah, um, and she's which... just been, like, watching all the, the psychic network shows. She's been reading all the journals, and she's found the best of the best, and then, like, Offered them all $5,000, which is equivalent of $7,000 now. So, you know, an okay chunk of sum. Yeah, money, yeah not, not bad like, for a day's work. Yeah, well, for a weekend or whatever, a weekend mm-hmm. outing. And so her real thing is, is she just wants this haunted house to come alive so she can get it all on record that this house is actually haunted. Yeah. She wants proof. I, I actually, there, there's a couple of things I want to address here. And the, sure. the first is when she's getting her team together, when the, the four of them, and there's there's other people that, that 
this is narratively kind of a mess because there's still characters we haven't even mentioned that have that like don't have a big impact on it. But like right. Emily Deschanel is in this, um, mm-hmm. and and so is Kevin Teague, um, and they're both psychics and they both just kind of die in this without doing much. They die pretty um, early, yeah. Yeah. But there's a really wonderful scene in the first episode where they're like at a bar introducing each other and they're all kind of like giving little examples of each other's powers and kind of like mm-hmm. riffing mm-hmm. on each other. I really like that. That was a fun little character moment for all of these psychic people. Should um, we talk about them a little bit more? Like the different psychic characters? Like an introduction of the the sure. psychic friends um, network. Yeah. And but but the other thing that I wanted to just mention before we do that is that like you know, uh, uh, Joyce is trying to be like, oh, parapsychology is a real field and I'm going to make my reputation on this. But you have like all of these examples of people with like verifiable psychic powers. And we just see them doing these psychic things for each other, to each other. Um, right. There's like, you know, there there's like a headline when Annie drops the rocks on the neighbor's house. It's like, right. oh, did this dog precipitate this psychic rock attack? And it's like, it's... wait, you're. You're trying to legitimize a field that there's already proof for. What's the conflict here? In this universe, (laughs) it's like there is hard, fast proof everywhere already. Yeah, and and they're like, oh, well, you know, she doesn't have a video. She doesn't have the audio recordings of anything. It's like, you don't need that. These people can do psychic things. Right. Rocks fell from nowhere, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's like there's no way of explaining these rocks. Yes. Well, and uh, not only that, like these several of these psychics are able to do things on demand repeatedly, which right. you could use in a scientific research setting. You could have kind of the um, Bankman psychic study setup going on, but instead of trying to meet cute young coeds, you'd have legitimate psychics and you wouldn't be <laughs> shocking them. You just have you do these studies and you could video record because all of these, all of these characters seem to be able to pretty reliably do their thing. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean like the character Emery, who's got retrocognition, he can literally talk to ghosts and they freak him out. He doesn't like talking to ghosts, but right. he could learn stuff that only a dead person would know. And then just be like, yeah, the treasure's buried over here. The ghost told me so. And then boom, there you go. Right. Or uh, you have, there's, so for our, our our group of psychics, we have Kathy Kramer, played by Judith Ivey, and she is a automatic writer, so she just kind of picks up different impressions, depending on what they're trying to get her to determine, and she just starts writing, and messages come forth, kind of, she compares it to a Ouija board. Mm-hmm. And we have... Possibly the most useless of them all. <laughs> It comes in at the end, though. Yeah, that's true. Because she's able to communicate. She finds out that the guy was murdered. Yeah. Well, she's able to connect with Annie and get Annie to focus on opening the doors at the end so they can get out. Like, she's the one, because she goes into this uh, altered state of consciousness, she's able to connect with Annie on this other level Mm. towards the end. So she does have a role to play. But she's not a heavy hitter in the psychic world, like, if we're going to compare to other people's powers. Yeah, I guess the most useless is the victor, because he just, he can see things that are going to happen, but he doesn't tell anybody about him. Yeah, he doesn't tell anybody about him, and he, like, mutters to himself a bunch and kind of wanders around on his own in a haunted house. Well, and you don't get the feeling that maybe it's that strong with him, because people, so... As we said, we have Emery Waterman played by Matt Ross, and and he's the one that sees the dead. And we have he sees the past. The character of Victor 
played by how do you pronounce his name andy kevin uh kevin teague i believe kevin teague okay yeah it's it's t-i-g-h-e so i'm assuming it's teague we see more more episodes or more moments of him having um heart issues than having psychic phenomena happen to him so that seems to be more of his kind of characterization the Chekhov's heart attack basically you know is coming from like moment well, and you kind of wonder, why would you go to a potentially scary and startling place if you have a heart issue? But maybe For you really 5, need... 5000 bucks, man. I guess, yeah. yeah. And then we have Nick Nick Hardaway, played by Julian Sands, who people will recognize if they're horror fans and like the Warlock movies or Arachnophobia or Boxing Helena, which is sort of a horror movie. <laughs> uh, he was also famously on Stargate for a while. Oh, um, right. Yeah. He's, he's in a really great Ken Russell movie called Gothic, which is about the weekend when um, the Shelleys spent a weekend with Lord Byron and they all kind of hung out during a stormy weekend and tried to scare each other with stories. And oh, it's supposed yeah. to be it's supposed to be the weekend that inspired Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. Right. So it's this like legendary gathering and then this film is about that. And he's in that as well. Was well, in not Dracula, but some other vampire story that's loosely connected yeah. to that weekend as well. I, th- there's a couple of the classic yeah. like Victorian horror yeah. stories that came out of that little gathering. Yeah, right. yeah. So it's kind of this legendary thing. And definitely, if that's of interest to you, go check out Gothic. And then we have, as we mentioned, Emily Deschanel playing a character named Pam Ashbury. And Pam is somebody who can touch objects and pick up information about them. Like she can, she can play the stone tapes basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Which is cool. She doesn't get to do it a whole lot. She gets to demonstrate it a few times. And And every time it happens, they just ignore it. And she's the first (laughs) to die in the house. And it's, yeah. Yeah. It's like the, they've all established that they're these amazing psychics and have these amazing powers. And every time any of them gets some kind of inkling of like, you shouldn't do this or you should get out of the house now. They're like, oh, that's probably nothing. Just ignore it. <laughs> it's probably fine. <laughs> we'll be okay. Let's just all sleep in this haunted house. It'll be cool. So I wanted to mention real quick so while we're talking about the cast that plays the psychics, Matt Ross, who plays Emery, who's so easy to hate. Like he's just this really unlikable character, stereotypical underdeveloped mama's boy who just, seems to hate everybody there he does get picked on a lot and there's a lot of weird fat shaming in this which i did not appreciate but honestly like he's insufferable but like the nick character is bullying him bullying him constantly and kind of worse than him yeah well and it it, i i'm really on team emery because he is like a reprehensible jerk and says a lot of really not cool things but at the same time he's also like He's like, the only reason I'm doing this is because I'm broke and I live with my mother and my life sucks. And also, he's constantly right about everything. And everyone just gives him shit about it. Right. He is right about what's going on. The two most, like, the two easiest characters to dislike, the father of Annie and Emery, are the two that have been, like, telling it the way it is and what you should be doing this whole time. It's like, no, we shouldn't go in there. Hey, we should get the hell out of here. Yeah. Um, And then then later on when they find out that like Annie, that the, cause the whole thing is, is the psychic friends network here has come together to supercharge this house. 
And then the house is like, thanks. That's awesome. Right. And it's just using them all and draining them. And it uses Annie to be able to telekinetically move anything it wants to. Like, before it could trick people and, like, get them lost and kind of, like, kill them and absorb them or, like, mess with their mind. But it couldn't, like, open the door, shut the doors, all this stuff. There was none of that, like, recorded before. Bullinger does get locked in the garden and not able to get out. Like, he can't, he goes in. But that could also be because the door's stuck because it's an old building, you know. There's all kinds of things that could be. But, like, she super powered it. And, like, you know, can do anything now. She can hold all the doors Annie. and windows shut. Yeah. And so, like, when Emery figures that out, he's like, well, because there's a scene where she get knocks herself unconscious trying to reach this dollhouse. And it's like, all the doors open. And the phone works. And the phone works <laughs> and everything. It's like, oh, now it doesn't have its superpowers anymore. And Emery's like, hey, let's just knock the kid back out and then we can all leave. And it's like, yeah, he comes up with some bad ideas of how to knock her out. But honestly, they could have figured out a way to just, like, get her to not be used for just a moment and Uh all lived. Yeah, well, and and that's the thing. is like, he's saying that stuff, and they're like, oh, we could never do that to a child. And then two of the characters wander off and start talking amongst themselves. And they're like, well, you know, he has a point. How should we deal with this? Um, Right. So and, Matt, I just want to say real quick yeah. about some of Matt, Matt Ross, he um, has been in tons of things and he does a really good job of playing this character who's like, he just has these constant facial expressions for this character that if, if you can just, I mean, you can see the acting, but it's not distracting. Like you can just tell that he's like really built up this right. character of Emery, but he, he was Emery in, the mouth breather. Yeah, yeah. He was in American Psycho. He more recently received a lot of acclaim for directing the film Captain Fantastic, starring Viggo Mortensen. Hmm. And um, a few years back, he actually played Johnny Cash in a movie opposite Jewel, playing June Carter Cash called Ring of Fire. And so if you really want to, like, see just an example of how this guy is able to chameleon himself. Like he actually in this, in the photos, I haven't seen the film, but the production photos, he's a convincing looking Johnny Cash. Right. And so you're trying to picture Emery as Johnny Cash, you know what I mean? Like it's, he's really talented. So I just, I wanted to mention that. Emery, Um, the overweight mouth breather that, pulls entire pies out of the fridge with a can of whipped cream for his dinner. And you believe this character and you believe that he's, been smothered and emotionally stunted and mildly abused by his mother because she right and he probably had a really messed up childhood where he saw ghosts constantly right basically he's what happens when the sixth sense kid yeah yeah when the sixth sense kid grows up he turns into emery right Um, and I also want to point out that, like, when he's suggesting that they knock the the girl out and being kind of nasty about it, this is after he's lost four of his fingers. Yeah. And, and he's like, yeah. it, he, he's he's suffered the most in this house, and he's just ready to to leave. And everyone is, keeps picking on him. It's like, well, what's your problem? He's like, I don't know. The fact that I lost, you know, some of my digits here. Right. Well, and there's a scene where. So I guess now that we've introduced all the characters, we should probably go through the ones as they die. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first one to die, which is ambiguous on whether or not she dies or not, 
like they do see her body later right originally but it took the rewatching for me like oh oh she actually did drown is pam played by deschanel emily deschanel where like who's famous for being bones she's bones Bones, and also as famous sister zoe deschanel and famous famous family yeah Yeah. they're all movie people her mother was on twin peaks yeah and so like she and this is where, like, things really start getting weird and vague, because it's like, was it her and, she, what's the auto writer's name? She follows Kathy, what she thinks is Kathy Kramer, out to right. the garden. But, like, she started out sharing a bed with Kathy Kramer, and then, like, gets <laughs> distracted like by dream. something, and then yeah. Kathy comes and she follows Kathy, but then later you see Kathy's in a different bed. And, and then, being menaced by and then something being under the blanket. By something <laughs> under the blanket. But then you also see Pam wake up from the dream, also in a different bed from Kathy. And then all of a sudden Pam's dead. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very weird and fuzzy how that actually takes place. But we she is the first. But she's the first the to die. She gets drowned while following in like the garden pool right she just drowns herself because the ghosts will her to basically it's not a big showy death or anything. no and then she's basically her ghost is involved in killing victor kandinsky who's the one who has the heart issues like she right. lures him out to the garden and there's right. this it's definitely an animated scene but it's kind of cool where this statue that looks over the reflecting pond rips its face off like right. it's gonna I almost thought it was like gonna hurl its face that but was it would just scene. it just ripped yeah. off its face so it could look behind it yeah and he because it can move off, its running. arm but it can't move the rest of its body yeah so it just takes its face off so that face off anyways <laughs> It takes its face off so that it can look behind itself. Mm-hmm. The guy who played Emery was in Face Off, too. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. so oh, nice connection. This is her. after he's discovered Pam's body. He was following Pam, and then Pam disappears. And well, then he discovers Pam's her body, but then her body just corpse. turns into just her nightgown. Yeah. Because yeah. she's possibly a zombie at that point, like Bollinger was. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure she's dead and well, has been absorbed into the property. We keep making comments, too, about how, like, if you die in the house, you're not really dead. You just sort of become absorbed and part of right. the general haunting but energy. But you would think if you were just recently absorbed, you'd still be kind of trying to fight it. Yeah. I don't know. So he... They never explain He has a heart things. attack, and while he's having the heart attack... Um, he Emery sees him through the window and he thinks it might be a vision. So he's doing his not right. there, not there. Because Emery's like, had a whole yeah. life of ghosts yeah. bugging him basically on the daily. So he just thinks it's a vision and tries to shoot away. And everyone's mad at him. They don't understand. Because, like, you know, they think he just let Victor die because Victor got dragged out into the garden by ghost pam Mm. and then ghost pam leaves and he's being chased by bees and things now one he couldn't have done anything if he wanted to right because no one else can get access to victor because um nick tries to bash the window with a pool cue and it 
just doesn't even the glass budge. won't break because it's being held together by the psychic energy and yeah. and also i don't think anybody understands how vivid his visions are and how that could be confusing you could right. think that you're seeing something because right. he's it's it makes me think of actually this is a slight tangent but there's a really hilarious episode of the it crowd where oh, um, everybody thinks that Jen from the IT crowd is dead and she is going after this guy who she went on a date with who's telling everybody that he slept that they slept together on their date because he thinks she's dead and he wants to be like, oh, it was the last person to be with her. And she's standing outside <laughs> his apartment in the rain or his house and it's been raining and her car like died in front of his house and she's distraught and she's like, She's like, stop telling people we slept together. But she looks like a ghost and he thinks she's dead. So he thinks she's, I don't know, it's kind of like that. You know, you see this distraught person. And if you're already primed to think this might be a ghost, if they're like wailing or writhing or making a contorted face, it doesn't help right. the, the idea. Right. So then he has his heart attack that we've yeah. been waiting for since like the first half hour. Yeah. Of of episode 1. Check off heart attack happens. Yeah. Yeah, so and then and then So that's two down. And then right after that things kind of ramp up at the house because you have Emery's mother running about the property and you have the um the rival professor oh, right. Miller. The professor that got lured in by He got a phone the call. prank phone call by the haunted house. He thinks he's getting a, a call from Steve Rimbauer saying that they found the body of Bollinger, but it's the house gives him this false message. I think Rimbauer actually does call him, but what he actually says is obliterated and manipulated in this right. other message. So he thinks he's in deep because he's right. going to be implicated. Cause in this Bollinger death. in his mind, the way the haunted house said it was that Bollinger slit his wrist and wrote his wrote the professor's name and blood all over the walls. Yeah. So he shows up and the two of them get in the gates and then they proceed to lose their minds and run amok because that's what happens. Basically Rose Red figured Rose out Red. how to bring two more victims in. It's like more more food for for the eating. And so they're running around and then we have everybody trapped inside. Emery's trying to get out because he sees his mom's car and he thought he had seen her as a ghost before, but he thinks she's really there because he sees the vehicle and figures that's not a hallucin hallucination. Mom's little scoot about. Yeah. To which, like, when he says the scoot about, like, yeah, that's a silly thing to call the car. But, like, Nick, who has been taunting Emery this whole time... We're now at a point where they know people are dead and they know this house is killing people. Mm -hmm. And he still finds the moment to mock Emery for oh, yeah. calling the car the scoot about. It's like, yeah. dude, just let it go. You're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. Stop mocking this guy. I almost kind of wondered if, and I doubt it was in there, but it just felt a little bit like subtext to me. Like maybe the character of Nick was like, sort of trying to flirt with Emery in a really mean way, kind of like kids do on a playground. And I don't know if I was just in my head, like he was just like picking on him constantly, like, hey, hey, yeah. or if he was just a jerk. I mean, he's, he was a jerk either way, but I was like, I was like, why? Why do you care so much? Like, yeah, this guy's cranky and selfish, but what of it? It's 
you got a lot of eccentric people on this team of psychics, you know? Yeah. So yeah, they're 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 inside, and that's when they make the discovery that when Annie's unconscious, the hold on the house relaxes because she's not able to psychically hold it all together, and it just keeps ramping up from there. We find out that that Emery's mother's been dragged into the house, and she's she in the pantry, she's in the kitchen on the ground. Right, because um, and she goes nuts. Auto rider lady goes for a glass of iced tea by herself. Yeah. No, because because God everyone... is always with her. <laughs> right. She's not alone. She's not going for iced tea by herself. God is always with her. And God's really annoyed with all these menial errands he's supposed to go on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like And but yeah, so like she goes off on her own after multiple people are dead now, and they know multiple people are dead, and Emery has lost his fingers to a door slamming on them when and there's no power. the consciousness. There's no power. The phone is dead. It's nighttime. Yeah, and she just wanders off on her own. No She's big deal. She's just trying to see if anyone's going to murder her, I'll I think. I'll be right back. Yeah, and, and eventually Nick goes and looks for her, and then they decide... That Emery's mother is well, her, too... Well, she's getting her iced tea. Emery's mother just pops out of nowhere and yes, starts attacking screaming her. screaming and attacking. And screaming about how, you know, you killed my Emery. Because she's assuming that Emery's dead. Uh-huh. Emery's kind of assuming she's dead. And both of them are making so much trouble because of this. And after they get her tied up and everything, they're like, let's not tell Emery about it. <laughs> so they tie and her up and like, leave her there. You're lying to me. He's dead. And it's like, let's not actually bring her to Emery so she'll calm down and he'll calm down. Let's just leave her tied up in yes, the kitchen and Yeah, tie her away. up and leave her in a haunted house. I feel, like if, I feel like if they'd just given her a minute to calm down and they said he's in the next room and just hold you know, right. hold the door open, let her go in there, and if she refuses, that's fine. Or just drag but... her tied up into the other room and be like, look, he's alive. She's alive. Look, you guys can calm the hell down there's, there's for a, a moment. There's a possibility that when she sees he's injured, she might still maul everyone. She seemed a little off her off her gourd as well. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe her super mom strength would knock down the door anyway. Well, but because she gets left behind and she's tied up and can't get away, then the ghosts get to have at her as soon as right. they leave. Like, moments after. Yeah. And they then, basically, they, they, the door clicks, and then the ghosts are like, ooh, yeah. Well, and then Nick, Nick and Kathy proceed to get lost mm-hmm. in the endless labyrinth of the house. And it's so one thing that we're shown repeatedly throughout this is that the house can it, change its shape. Right, it can it stretch. It can add new walls. When they first go on their initial tour, they go through these really cool spaces. Um, there's a hallway that Zucchina apparently helped design. Like She drew up the plans for And it's a room that has kind of an optical illusion. It reminds me of there's a scene in Willy Wonka where right, they have a very exactly similar hallway where it just everything starts to get smaller and smaller. But it's the exact replica of the rest of the hallway. So it creates this like weird otherworldly feeling. And mm. there's hidden doors. There's an upside down passageway where the lamps are on the floor and right. the furniture is on, on the, the ceiling. ceiling. And they go through that several times. So they have these awesome sets and right. miniatures that they use for this. And it's so cool. And that's 
honestly, which, what I really love about about this miniseries the most is the house. Yeah, the which is apparently what really ballooned the budget. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to like be three million or something, and it ended up oh, costing geez. like thirty some odd million. Well, and if, if you look at the um, during the credits when they run, there's so many people that are like in charge of building the sets and carpenters right. and like all of the effects people, you know, the right. it, it, they really went to the nines on the house. And it's probably the best part of this. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Like the the art direction and the set design and the because there's also um, all of the creepy ghosts. There's some CGI ghosts, like blue ghosts, but there's also the, like, in-between zombified people, because some are ghosts and some are kind of still alive, Crypt Keeper style, uh-huh. and, like, those are all animatronic puppets that are, like, oh, they are they so good. They look good, yeah. So good. They're creepy. Creepy as hell. And, like, yeah, all that stuff is expensive but it looks good yeah right i mean honestly it's i really like i like this mini series even despite its many flaws but it's i think it's really too bad that stephen king and steven spielberg weren't able to work something out and make their remake of the haunting because the haunting that we got in theaters cost more than this to make and it was terrible you know i mean there's some fun scenes in that, but well, they spent all their money on big name stars. Honestly, you could have, if this had been trimmed down and edited for a feature like film instead and tightened up. So you cut out all the long, boring, let's stare at the house while creepy music plays scenes. You need a little for building atmosphere, but mm. you could, and cut out stuff that's repetitive. You don't necessarily need to see people walk through the same hallways over and over again, even though they're really awesome hallways. Right. It's like, we built these sets, we're going to show them. They spend millions but, on them, they're going to shoot that hallway over and over again. You, it gives you an idea of, it wouldn't have necessarily maybe been the biggest masterpiece of a King adaptation or the best thing Spielberg ever done, but I feel like it would have been good. Mm. And that is not what we got. <laughs> But anyway, the reason why we talk about the design of the house is because in this scene, um, Nick and Kathy go in that hallway, that optical illusion hallway, and they have trouble getting out of it. And then something starts coming from under the carpet and then launches up and attacks. And Nick sort of stays behind for some reason. He shoves. He shoves Kathy out. Kathy into a a hidden door room. Mm -hmm. And then he stays behind to fight the evil. I guess. (laughs) Because, you know, he's totally going to outwit that evil. His his psychic power, he says, is like a little bit of everything. So he's not like a really strong telekinetic power, but he can kind of read people's minds a little bit and kind of look like there's a scene where he's looking into his beer mug and he can see images of like the past. He's kind of like, I can't think of a character to liken him to, but he's very just like, he can see the way the world works. He can see the way people's minds work. He can see the way like things move around in space, but he can't really do anything about it. He just, he just like the mastermind of, cause there's that scene in the very beginning when, they're taking the tour and all of a sudden the rope that they're using to like not get lost 
goes through the middle of a solid wall. Yeah. And, like, he can't do anything about it, but he talks to Annie. He knows what to do. And he knows what to do, and he can see in Annie's mind how it works enough to know that she can get rid of this problem instantly. And he helps her, and she does it. And And he helps her when Joyce sends her up to look through the little viewing glass to look at the little miniature dollhouse on the other side of the wall, he knows that there's a secret panel that you have to touch to open. And so before she goes up to look at it, he like motions with his hands, like you got to like do this motion thing. And then she imitates what she sees him do. And that's how she opens. Because he's also a mind reader. So he probably was like reading Joyce's mind. He knows what Joyce is trying to do. Mm. And the fact that he chose to stay there anyway. I know. <laughs> all of these guys are like, you should all know better. So, yeah, he... Of all the people in the world, you're the ones that should know better. He's down for the count after this. And you're not a bunch of sorority girls, like, staying the night on a dare. No. <laughs> Which would be like, you would totally like be like, oh, yeah, they're dumb. They don't know what's coming. So they're going to get picked off. So basically, we're left with... The Wheaton sisters, Kathy, Emery, and then um, Joyce and, and Steve. Steve Rimbauer. And also, we didn't mention, but uh, Joyce is played by Nancy Travis, which we mentioned previously. But Nancy Travis was in a bunch of stuff in the nine, especially in the early '90s. But one of one of the movies that I know her from the most is she plays Harriet, and so I married an axe murderer. Yes. And there's little twinges of her being. Is she crazy and a killer in that movie, or is she a sweetheart? And I feel like it's funny because she takes that and just dials it up to 111 for this. Like, she really goes off the rails. But you see little glimpses of it in that movie where she's making her behavior, it seems just slightly off kilter enough that that Mike Myers is questioning whether he's safe with her or not. A great movie, by the way. I yeah. highly recommend anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so fun. So I thought I'd be I, I thought it'd be good to mention that in case anybody was wondering where they maybe see her and other things. She was also in um a really disturbing thriller from the early eighties called The Vanishing and then just lots of other T V spots and small roles in films here and there. Yeah, and then I honestly I don't really have much for um the actor that plays Steve Rimbauer. I don't know if anybody... He was in Art School Confidential. And his name is, is Matt Kiesler? What I recognize yeah, him from. Okay, yeah. Where he plays the undercover reporter guy that starts to think he actually wants to be an artist for a second. Sure. Well, and while we're on the subject of cast, um, interesting note, apparently um, Melanie Linsky met and then later married Jimmy Simpson after doing this miniseries. Right. Sister so, and yeah. Bollinger. Yeah. But then oh. they got divorced later. I mean, a few but years later. They were married yeah. for a few they years. They were married for a while. Yeah. But met here. So they have a, I guess, a meet, meet cute. In a the... meet cute of Rose Red. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So we mentioned earlier that the exteriors for this were actually shot in a real property which right. you can go to and visit if anyone is so inclined. Just Andy the mentioned very front because the house is much. It's like um, the overhead shots are models. It's like the exterior shots for The Shining. Right. And yes. then like they built sets that are so much bigger than the 
Timberline Lodge, which they yeah. call the overlook in the movie. So the exterior shots for this is literally just the like first wing of the house, just up front. You got, you know, the door in the middle and like two big towers on either side. Some of the side. sculptures and fountain work are actually, they, they were adapted, but reused because right. I looked at some pictures of the grounds. So but anyway. And the rest was all models to make it look gigantic. And then the set design on the inside is extensive, you know, because there's possibly over 100, possibly only 70 rooms in the house. No one quite knows because it's constantly changing. Right. Yeah. So the exteriors were shot at Thornwood Castle, which is not actually in Seattle in, within the city limits, but it's in a town nearby. So if yeah. you ever wanted to it's visit... It's like just outside of Tacoma, right? I think I so. That's what I read. Um, anyway, they... It's a it's a place it's a popular wedding venue now. You can actually go see it. It's in pristine condition. It is not creepy and overgrown. But if you want to do <laughs> a fun little rose red excursion, and as Andy had mentioned about Winchester, the Winchester Mystery House, like oh, we could have a haunted Davenport field trip. We could definitely very easily have a haunted Davenport field trip to Thornwood Castle. And yeah, according to their just a few hours away. Yeah, and according to their website, they actually have some memorabilia from the movie and some posters about the, you know, some, we're not posters, but placards explaining where things were shot and the production. And apparently you can stay overnight there and they will lend you the DVD. So um, our friends over at the horror movie podcast years ago started what they called the dead serious horror challenge, which we actually did where if you watched a film at its location or a location that's similar, like, you know, you watch Night of the Living Dead in a graveyard, that would count, or a hospital horror film in the hospital, and hopefully no one's having to go to the hospital. But what we did is we actually went to a friend's wedding that was at Mount Hood, which is where Timberline Lodge is, where they did the exteriors for The Shining, and we were staying in a smaller lodge just up the mountain from the main Timberline Lodge, in drenched in snow. It was covered right. in snow. So we did a little video. and Yeah, the um, front of the lodge definitely looked just like the front of the lodge at the end of the movie. And I can actually, I, I'll put I'll put a link to where you can see that, because it's, it's not a private video on YouTube, but it's unlisted, because I didn't want to just submit it to everybody in the masses to watch but it's i'll put a link in our show notes on the haunteddavenport.com if anyone wants to check out our dead serious horror challenge film from 2017 that we did where we recorded and talked about watching the shining at the exterior location for the shining Mm. but my point is if you wanted to do that something similar you could go to thornwood castle and stay the night and it's very swank and you could watch rose red Although that would be a much longer endeavor than watching The Shining. Yeah, because right. um, it's like, what, four hours altogether? It's over, yeah, over four yeah, hours. Yeah, over four hours. Yeah. And it's one of the few actual castles that we have here in uh, on the west coast of North America. Um, not, a, not a lot of those out here. However, I propose that sometime we could do a little field trip and just a day trip and we could go... I think they just open it up to tours. We go walk around. The interiors would be different, but you could walk around the outside and maybe we could record a little segment of yeah. going to the setting for Rose Red. Yeah. I think that would be fun. Yeah, I want to know who got pieces of the set from the interior. Yeah, and we might we have to see if Val gets a chance if we can do like a follow-up segment like we did for Sleepy Hollow a couple years back because this was one I picked kind of having her in mind because I know... 
she's a fan of kind of the Shirley Jackson style haunted house legend where she was a big fan of um, the haunting of Hill house television series that was on in recent years. Mm-hmm. And there's another one that's like a spinoff of that too. And I'm trying to remember the name. I haven't watched either series, but they're both supposed to be really good. And she was a big fan and she, I don't know that she loves haunted house stories because sometimes they're a little bit overwhelmingly spooky, but I thought also with her being a, a Melanie Linsky fan and a fan of Halloween town, which is where most people know Kimberly J Brown, who plays Annie Wheaton. Mm-hmm. I thought this would be good to get her feedback on as well, but I can't believe I even like didn't mention that till just now. So yeah, the sort of Annie's kind of the star of the show in a way. And a lot of kids, if they grew up watching Disney in, you know, the late 90s through the 2000s would know about the Halloween Town series. And Kimberly J. Brown is mostly famous for doing those, although Mm -hmm. she did lots of other stuff as well. And she actually, every few years, comes to St. Helens, Oregon, where they do the Halloween Town sort of revival and they light the pumpkin and they have different members from the cast come and do little meet and greets and stuff. Yep, another another little local piece of horror lore we got. Yeah, well, not really horror, but fun Halloween yeah, stuff. Yeah, fun, spooky stuff. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Well, so I guess we should just talk about the ending a little bit. because yeah, we've already talked about everyone's death, I think, at this point. Yeah, yeah, and that's and the the deaths sort of are the current that runs throughout. Um, right. mm-hmm. And, and it, Nick's death is kind of off screen and lackluster. Well, he's just, yeah, he's just not yeah. there in the next the next scene. You're like, oh, right. okay. Because yeah. like he's gonna fight the demon in the carpet, and then <laughs> he shoves Kathy into the do- into the room, and Kathy's like, you know what? I should be helping him. And then she opens up the door, and there's no one there. Yeah, yeah. he's just dead off screen. Right. Yeah, I don't understand why he chose. And to you never stay even behind. see a ghost of him later. Like other people, you kind of see ghosts at of later. At the very end. He's at the very end. Is he? Yeah, the big grand finale where all the dead show up and descend, which I guess we should talk about now. Okay, yeah, let's get so on that. Basically, the challenge at this point is everybody who's still surviving is trying to get out <clears> because <throat> if they don't leave the house tonight, they're probably not making it out alive. Right. They're and never so leaving. They, it's now or never. They eventually come to the conclusion that what they need to do is they need to be able to reach Annie and convince her to open the doors, like help get her to focus on opening up the house. So Kathy, who's the automatic writer, sits down and does this automatic writing session with her. And in the midst of this, everything in the house is just kind of going crazy and haywire. And Joyce is running around trying to get recordings of everything. And she's got this counter that shows... How it's many like a, people, approximate or, yeah. people in the room. Yeah, that, yeah. that weird little gadget thing. And so you yeah. keep getting shots of that throughout the film where it starts going up, but it's like skyrocketing and mm. everything's amping up. And so they try to get Annie to focus and they, they sit down with her and through the automatic writing, the two of them do it together, Kathy and Annie, and they're able to get Annie to channel the sort of message of open the, open the doors, open the windows, open the house. Mm. And so... Everybody except for Joyce is able to get out because it works and they all run outside. Right. Cause Joyce won't leave. No, she won't. And she, she won't leave. And then the doors close behind them. As soon as they get out, the doors slam shut again and Joyce finds herself trapped inside and realizes that she made a terrible mistake <laughs> and all of the 
all of the ghosts, including all the recently dead, that family and psychics and mm. the professor, everybody's there. Professor. And this is the scene where mm. David Dukes is portrayed by another actor because he passed before the scene was able to be shot. And so someone's there dressed as him in the scene and they're all kind of gather around her and then attack her. And then from the outside, Annie does her manifesting giant boulders from the sky trick and starts pummeling the house. <laughs> kind of a one trick pony there. And she yells, bad house. And like, right. And she starts pummeling the house with giant rocks. And then they come back. I don't remember how, like a month later. It's like six couple, months yeah. later. Six months later. Although yeah. six months later, it'd be like the middle of winter. <laughs> And it's definitely not the middle no, of winter when they come Seattle, back. No, it'll be pouring down rain and spray. <clears throat> yeah. But, so they're, they come back and they each bring a rose and it's pretty hokey because they're talking about, oh, roses mean remember. And and Emery attempts a smile at Annie during the scene. Right. Because Emery so... and Annie are going to be best friends now. Yeah, but I don't buy it. It's more like, I kind of feel like Emery has realized that this girl can kill him on a whim. And like, it's kind of, it's more like he's smiling at her in the way people smile at that kid in that Twilight Zone episode. It's a good life where they're like, oh, oh it's yeah. very good. Don't wish me out into the cornfields, you know. <laughs> it's just it's this really weird smile and this weird interaction. And then they all leave roses in the tower. You see that Joyce has joined Ellen and Zucchina in the tower as the little specter that's looking out over the landscape and you know, I guess facing the impending demolishment, but soon they'll have some condos to haunt. So. Yeah. Yeah. Cause good luck with there's that. There's no way it's just <laughs> the house. I think the, the condos are totally, cause they made the diary of Ellen Rimbauer, which is more of a prequel than a sequel. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's totally room for a sequel where you have like a early two thousands mixed use uh, condominium complex with you know a froyo place in the basement. <laughs> Why does the froyo always have blood coming? Right, out of the machine? you know, because you know that's happening. You could have a pretty <laughs> awesome spinoff from this of a haunted condominium or haunted uh, giant apartment complex. Well, like they play Glenn Miller throughout because Annie <laughs> character is so much loves Glenn it. Miller big band. So stuff. I can see in the con in the condo in the future you get the the Philharmonic Muzak version of Glenn Miller. It'd be, sure. It wouldn't be original. It would always be some weird cover. <laughs> or like, they keep like trying elevator to, music. Yeah, they keep yeah. trying to program the elevator music to be something more modern, but it always keeps coming out as Glenn Miller. <laughs> it's always Glenn Miller. Like I, I programmed like, it to play. I told you to stop putting Glenn Miller in the elevators. I was like, trying I didn't to get do it, it to play Girl from Infinema, but it will only play <laughs> in the mood. Oh, man. Oh, I had in the mood stuck in my head at work the other day. Uh-huh. Uh and then In a Summer Place plays a bunch, which I associate with Animal House. <laughs> There's a scene where oh. he's, he's, like, got the passed out girl. Right, yeah. where he's <laughs> contemplating whether or not to commit date rape. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that, and he that doesn't. Song, <laughs> that song's been used so, you know, a bunch. So, you know, he chose the better... <laughs> Of the two uh, angel and demon on his shoulder Thank in that iconic that. scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So I think I think that's it for for Rose Red. Unless either of you have anything else that you wanted to add or comment on. No, I'm good. 
Nope. I think we uh, looked up some of the people who did creature effects. Uh, there were Jeff Jingle and Dan Rebert. Right. And or a few of the ones that seemed like maybe they were more in charge, but there's like 20 people. Right. A huge crew of people. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Greg Funk, who did uh, was one of the main makeup people for this, has also mm-hmm. just been a prolific makeup artist in cool. Hollywood. It, yeah. Worked on all sorts of stuff from Marvel movies to Austin Powers. You know. Right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the people that worked on this have worked on Marvel movies and a lot of them all worked on the G.I. Joe movie. Or I don't know if there's more than one G.I. Joe movie. I never watched any of them. <laughs> if there's more than one, I didn't watch even the first one. So. Right. Yeah, and I know a couple of these people worked on the 1990s remake of Night of the Living Dead. Um, oh. Yeah, which is, which is why I, I thought some of that zombie makeup looked familiar. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, it's totally from the... Um, Oh god, I can't remember the name of the guy who directed that. Was that um, a Tom? Did Tom Savini direct that? That was a Tom Savini. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The, so the Tom Savini Night of the Living Dead. A lot of these, some of these okay. makeup people got Maybe their chops on that. Maybe these guys were. So serious. They might yeah. be Tom Savini school people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would make sense. Nice, very nice. But yeah, definitely the creature effects, the withered human ghost people were very reminiscent of the Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Yeah, so many little, like, mummy hands coming out of people in this. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but, like, really simple practical effects for some of it. Like, they just had some of the shots where, like, it wasn't the face moving. They would just have, like, the elongated fingers and stuff. Yeah. And it was essentially the Halloween witch fingers, you know, but, like, done really well. It's so creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So I would definitely, I mean, I recommend watching this thing through its entirety. It's... It's it's a ride, and you know it's, you got It's got some moments that are a little cringy, and it's got, I you know. Also, think if you're somebody who's watched other Stephen King miniseries on television, and you haven't checked this one out, then I would definitely recommend it. Well, it's um, definitely one of the best ones I've seen. I, yeah. You know, a lot of people really love The Stand, and to be fair, I haven't seen it since I was a teenager, so I probably need to revisit it. I was not a fan of that one. But I also really love haunted house stories, so that might be why I respond better to this. But I did like it. It also has its weird over-the-top moments, but the Tommy Knockers was one that I've enjoyed in the past. Um, hmm. And that's also got a really huge, interesting cast all throughout that. And it's, it's you know, everybody has their, their favorites if they're a Stephen King fan. And I definitely am a fan of a lot of adaptations of his work i've only actually ever read the shining so i can't say i'm a super fan of the novels but i really did like the shining quite a bit mm-hmm. well this one wasn't a novel right yeah it was started out as a as a movie screenplay and right. then a, te- a teleplay right. so yeah it, it definitely was never a novel although i think they attempted to do a novel based on the diary, but I don't think Stephen King actually wrote that. I think they hired somebody else to Hmm. do the diary of Ellen Rimbauer. I don't know. Maybe one of these days I'll, I'll check that out, but I wasn't as, I wasn't as intrigued because Stephen King wasn't actually involved. We did forget to mention he does a a cameo here. Like he likes to. (laughs) He's he's a pizza guy. It's just, it's pretty fun. It's a fun Mm. moment. (laughs) So, and he's, you know, he's in shadow when you first see him, which is cool. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so I think all three of us are on the, the same page that this is, you know, it has its issues. And But as far as 
being 20 years old with special effects, like it holds up pretty well. It's really yeah, interesting. For the most part, because it's a lot of practical effects, nothing really tears you out of it. There's yeah. a few times like the blue ghosts are a little video gamey looking. And actually the floating dominoes weren't even that distracting. No, those but, actually looked pretty good. Mostly, yeah. they're they're pretty simple to render. But um, <coughs> yeah, I I definitely you know it was interesting to watch. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something I probably would have gone out of my way to watch on my own. But you know, seeing all the people in it, seeing all the people who are involved in making it, it's 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 unique for sure. It's kind of an experience. So yeah. Well, and I'd say too, if you are a fan of Robert Wise's 1963 version of The Haunting. Mm-hmm. or you feel like that's something you might want to check out, some good classic black and white 60s horror. Right. I And you want, after that, you're like, oh, I have a hankering for a more modern take on it, but um, you're not going to sit down and watch that newer series all the way through. I would say skip The Haunting from 1999, unless you want to watch something just terrible. Unless you just want to watch <laughs> And watch this, watch this instead. Well, and it's it's actually one where I even revisited it a few years ago, and I'm like, is it as bad as I remember it? And then I thought, maybe it's so bad it's good. Nope. But I just nope. was annoyed. I was just yeah. irritated the whole time. No, it seems like in that movie, the 19... Was it 99? Yeah. The 99 haunting. It seems like it's almost just set up as, let's make these people so bad you really don't feel bad when any of them die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just rooting for the house. Yeah. It's the haunted house movie where you're rooting for the house. Yeah, and, and, and this is a is. house that's possessed by, like, a child-murdering ghost. You know, the <laughs> house the house and you're also usually, annoying, Yeah, though. exactly. You're, you're supposed to always root for the people in a haunted house. You want them to escape, you know. But... I wasn't rooting for the haunted house either because it was filled with all those obnoxious Cherubs. cherub babies. And they'd mm. have reaction shots where they're all looking afraid. I'm like, ugh, this is yep. just... I wanted to smack everything in that movie, including the sculptures. <laughs> just like, stop it. Ugh. All right. Anyway. Well, I think I think with that being all wrapped up, I would say thanks for listening to our Rose Red discussion. And we hope you'll join us next time on The Haunted Davenport. I think we might be going into a cyberpunk sci-fi realm with some Max Headroom. Yeah, don't worry. We're not going to watch Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> Well, that's not a TV movie or no, a show. Not, so it, it definitely could have been a TV movie. God. <laughs> so anyway, we can talk about that next time when we talk about that. But we, we're going to check out the television show. I know there's also a BBC telefilm of with the same character. But I think we're mainly going to just focus on some episodes of the show and do an overview discussion. But if you want to check that out right now, it's available on streaming on Tubi, which is a free service with ads. So if you don't mind some commercials, then go over to Tubi TV and you can check out Max Headroom. I can put that link in our show notes, too, if that's helpful for this episode. But as I said before, thanks for listening. And we hope you will join us next time on The Haunted Davenport.
wears his Sunday best. Mother's tired, she needs a rest. The kids are playing up downstairs. Sister's sighing in her sleep. Brother's got a date to keep, he can't hang around. Got a date to keep, he can't hang around. Ah. 